0: Strong Interactions, a podcast about exploring a new frontier in nuclear physics at the upcoming Electron-Ion Collider by
1: Markus Diefenthaler
0: and Maria Żurek. Stories straight from the heart of matter. Welcome to our next episode of Strong Interactions. Today we will give our own spin on the interior of the proton. We will be talking about its spin, especially the longitudinal spin structure. And what the longitudinal spin structure is and how we can study it, we will learn from our expert, Dr. René Fatemi from the University of Kentucky.
1: René works on both nuclear physics and high-energy physics. She is a member of the Star Collaboration at RIG, the Relativistic Heavy-Ion Collider, and um, the Muon G-2 collaboration at Ferminab. In the EIC community, she is known um, as chair of the EIC user group.
0: Good afternoon, Rene, and thank you so, so much for accepting our invitation.
2: Oh, this is fun. I'm so excited. So
0: let's start from this very first and fundamental question What is the spin of the proton?
2: Wow. Okay. If we're going to talk about the spin of the proton, maybe we first have to refresh ourselves a little bit on what spin is. You know, I think spin is one of these mysterious quantities that we have a hard time relating to as physicists, right? You know, I mean, we all uh, get, get up every day and or maybe not every day, maybe once a year at the doctor's office and weigh ourselves and we say, oh, okay, I have some idea of what mass is and how that relates to my weight. But when you have something like spin, something that's a fundamentally a quantum mechanical uh, effect, it's really hard to relate to it. And I, There's this quote I love by Feynman um, he, in, his, in his third volume. It appears to be one of the few places in physics where there's a rule which can be stated very simply for, for which no one has found a simple and easy explanation. And the explanation is down deep in relativistic quantum mechanics And that probably means that we do not have a complete understanding of the fundamental principle involved. And I love this about Feynman because he's just not afraid to say, you know what? If you're just relying on some math to say what something is, you probably don't get it. You probably don't really understand, you know, what spin is, right? What can we do then? We're trying to talk about the spin of the proton, and we're having a hard time already defining what spin is. But the way I like to define it is is to say if I was in the rest frame of the proton, then spin is the angular momentum that I still have, right? Because if I'm in the rest frame, all of the orbital angular momentum from me moving around some object goes away, right? I'm in my rest frame. Any momentum I have from me spinning around my axis goes away because I'm in my rest frame. So any angular momentum that's left over, that's what we call spin. It's really just a quantum mechanical effect that I would say people really still struggle to deeply understand, but we know it's something that fundamental particles have. And it's, and so the proton, of course, has a spin, it's spin one half and, you know, people naturally started asking questions. If spin is a fundamental property of particles, well, then it, What makes up the proton spin? How do we get spin one half? Every single proton, we look at has spin one half. How does that happen?
1: The spin one half is essential here. The spin statistic theorem relates the spin of a particle to the quantum statistics it obeys, Fermi-Dirac or Bose-Einstein statistics. The proton with a spin of one half is a fermion. Other examples for fermions are electrons or quarks, Fermions obey Fermi-Dirac statistics, and thus the Pauli exclusion principle. Two particles cannot occupy the same quantum state, which has considerable effects on the properties of the bound system.
0: Let's jump right now to the next question. Uh, what do we actually know about the spin structure of the proton and how our understanding of it evolved over time?
2: All right, so let's let's go back to where the nineteen nineteen seventies, where we first convinced ourselves we really believe that the proton is made up of things called quarks. They were postulated right by gell and other people, but um, it wasn't until we had these experiments where we slammed electrons into uh, uh, into protons uh, that we really convinced ourselves that that the proton was made of quarks. And in fact, these quarks seem to be very mysterious in the sense that they had fractional charge, for example. But the proton, which is composed of two ups and one down quark, um, seem to all kind of hang together and make sense if you just looked at the quark model, right? You, If you look at the quark model, you have two ups, which has a two thirds charge and a two thirds charge and a down with a minus one thirds charge. And that all comes together to, to manifest as the charge of the proton. And so people thought, well, okay, it makes sense that probably the spin of the proton is also coming from the quarks. In fact, people even said, well, if the spin of the proton's coming from the quarks, then we could take the the magnetic moment of the proton and see if we can reconstruct it from the spin of the quarks. Because in fact, if you have spin and, and charge, you have have something called a magnetic moment where the particle acts like a little magnet. Um, And so if the quarks are charged, they have little magnetic moments. And of course that should lead to the proton magnetic moment. And it seemed like that should all hold together. That somehow if you took the charge of the quarks, considered their charges and their spins, that led to nearly the experimental measurement of the proton magnetic moment. And this was really exciting because people thought, okay, that's it. You know, we're pretty convinced that we got quarks inside the proton. Now, what we have to go do is just measure the spin of those quarks inside the proton and let's just see if we're right. See if it all adds up. So
0: in this historical picture, the spin of the proton would come from the down quark and the spins of up quarks would cancel out due to the Pauli exclusion principle.
2: Yeah, that that's right. Exactly. That's right. That you would have some sort of cancellation because the you have three spin one-half objects, right? Up quarks are identical as you say. They cannot be in exactly the same state. So likely they're opposed to each other. And then the down is left over, making the net contribution to the spin of the proton. Yeah. Now of course I think if you talk to some of the theorists they would say well you know folks we weren't quite that simple minded we uh, we did account for some other things going on you know right i mean if you would talk they would say well we thought there might be some orbital motion of of the quarks inside and and then and they would account for that but still people largely thought the spin of the proton came from the quarks i, I would say at the level of say you know 70% should come from the quarks So, of course, you know, once the theorist lays down a prediction, that's exactly what experimentalists want because now we can go measure something and and test out the theory. So that's exactly what happens. So we go off, experimentalists decide to measure um, the distribution, the spin distribution of the quarks inside the proton. And they do this several different ways. They take electrons. And the idea with electrons is that the electrons will interact electromagnetically with the charge of the quarks. And, the, and if they take their electron beam and they orient the spins of the electrons in one direction, meaning either aligned or anti-aligned with the, with the momentum of the electron, then they can control the interaction such that they preferentially pick out quarks that are aligned or anti-aligned with the spin of the proton. Um, This happens to also work with things called muons, which is the heavier uh, version of of the electron. Okay, so you could do this with muons and you can do this with electrons. And in fact, we've done both. So what came out of this was um, a result that was very surprising at the time, um, and that was that they measured uh, a value that was very consistent with zero. So um I actually looked at the value because it's fun to have these numbers because we like numbers, right? So it's just, it's just, we like numbers. So the number that they measured was 0.12 plus or minus 0.094 plus or minus 0.138. So you can see there. So the first one's the statistical error bar, and the second one's the systematic error bar. And you can see that the value they measured was about the same value as their error bar. So The problem is, is when your error bar is the same value that you measure, it's consistent with zero. And so people were shocked. First of all, 0.12 is much smaller than they thought it would be. And second of all, um, it it could possibly even be zero with these error bars. This led people to start speculating. Well, you know, where has the spin of the proton gone? Where does it come from? If it's not coming from the quarks, then maybe it's coming from some of the other players in the the proton. And this is where people really started to expand their conception of the proton. And they realized, look, these quarks are held inside the proton due to strong interactions. And the strong interactions are mediated by these things called gluons. And gluons have no charge. So these electrons, new ones that were coming in, saw no gluons. They didn't interact with the gluons. But the gluons are there. They're just holding the the quarks inside the proton so they don't go flying out. And so they thought, well, heck, these gluons, they also have spin. Maybe, maybe there's some spin in the gluons. Or maybe, maybe it's not the gluons at all. Maybe it's these things called, um, you know, C quarks or in particular strange quarks. So if you have the picture of the proton, you have your three quarks, you're up, up and down. They're all interacting and jostling around due to the exchange of the gluons. But every once in a while, actually more than once in a while, the gluons will split off into a QQ bar pair. Why do they do this? Well, because they can, and vacuum is never really a vacuum. And so they produce UU bars and DD bars and SS bars. So you mentioned probing the structure of the proton with
0: electrons and muons, especially the contribution from the quarks. And then you mentioned, okay, but we also want to understand what's the contribution from the C, quark C and gluons. So how can we probe this contributions to the proton uh, spin and how
2: Generally, we can probe the proton spin structure. Oh, wow. There's lots of different ways, and it kind of depends on what, you, what piece of that you want to investigate, right? Right. Like I said, we, we first started by, by using leptons, using electrons and muons, and people like that because it turns out electrons and muons are, are very clean because they exchange something called a photon, a virtual photon. And this virtual photon, okay, a photon is the particle that you know hits your eye as coming from the sun, right? It's the thing that, that we call light. Um, in this case, the photon is really a quantization of the field, of the electromagnetic field. And so the photon, um, we understand photons really well. I mean, Feynman really helped us out with that because that's quantum electrodynamics, and that's a theory that we can calculate really well. So people really like to use electrons or any kind of lepton, really, to probe the proton structure. So if you're trying to understand the quarks, then electrons and muons are ideal. Really, they're fantastic because the the electron comes in and it it, it interacts electromagnetically with the Uh, the uh, the charge of the quarks. And so you can study all sorts of effects that way. The issue, there are some downsides. There are some downsides. One big downside is that you can't couple directly to the gluons, and that's because the gluons don't carry the electric electric charge. Uh, They do carry a different charge, however, and that charge is the color charge. So every force has an associated charge, okay? And that charge is related to the coupling that defines the strength of the force, okay? So if you want to study gluons, then it's, then it's hard to use electrons uh, and muons. You're still sensitive to the gluon because those gluons like to spawn those QQ bar pairs we were talking about. And of course, if you're sensitive to the electric charge and the QQ bar pairs, then naturally you're going to be sensitive indirectly to the gluons but you know that's a hard way to make a living right because you have to you have to somehow untangle your connection to these qq bar pairs which we call c quarks because there's just a sea of them right the valence quarks are hanging out in a sea of qq bar pairs so you have to somehow disentangle um your sensitivity to the c quarks and your sensitivity to, to the valence quarks and somehow uh, figure out how that's related to the gluons. So that's a hard way to, to, to be sensitive to uh, to gluons. So instead, oftentimes what people will do to be sensitive to gluons is to take a, a probe that is sensitive to the color charge. and we know we have a probe that's sensitive to the color charge and that is just another proton, for example. So if you take two protons and scatter them off of each other instead of scattering an electron off of a a proton, now you have a ball of quarks and gluons, all which carry color charge, scattering off another ball of quarks and gluons that all carry a color charge, and they're interacting, okay? my uh, thesis advisor first called this throwing trash cans at each other. (laughs) He wasn't a big fan. (laughs) Proton, proton scatter. (laughs) Which is funny because, you know, I love proton, proton scattering. Anyway, so, so yes. So we, we, we throw these protons at each other. And the idea is that one gluon uh, will interact with a from one proton will interact with a quark from another, or one gluon from one proton will interact with a gluon from another one. And these sorts of interactions um, then lead us to direct sensitivity of, of, of the gluon uh, spin distribution inside the proton. So that, that, that's the big picture. Of course, there's lots of ways to, um, to measure. For example, in proton-proton scattering, you can still be sensitive to the C quarks, by uh, what is effectively called dralien scattering, right? You can have a, a U-bar D that come together to produce a W boson um, that 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 you can then detect, and that will give you sensitivity to your, your C quarks. So um, there's lots of games to be played, but that's the general big picture. So, Renée, you, you talked about these proton-proton
1: collisions, but how I do I then make the spin measurement when I collide a protons with protons?
2: Similar to the, um, the electron proton scattering experiments, what we do is we polarize our proton beams. Um, so we take two proton beams and accelerate them to very high energies and we orient their spins either aligned or anti-aligned with the momentum. And we collide these and we keep track. I mean, we keep track of, you know, Was this bunch that I accelerated um, oriented along its momentum direction? Was the spin oriented along or was it anti-aligned with the the momentum? And we collide these and we can keep track of these and then look at what comes out. And typically what comes out are things called jets, which are just sprays of particles. Um, And we reconstruct these sprays of particles and we do something called spin sorting. We separate them into the groups where both protons that are colliding have the same helicity meaning their spin is aligned or anti-aligned with momentum or we put them in a group where the proton one proton being has the opposite helicity of the other and from this we can actually form something called an asymmetry that allows us to probe um the spin of both the quarks and the gluons now this is something that's really need about proton scattering is that because we're sensitive to both the protons and the gluons, we we could extract the helicity distributions and of both the quarks and the gluons. And in fact, we do. We have that information. But we have so much more strength in constraining the gluon because we have all of the previous measurements of the quark helicity distributions. So we can use those previous measurements from EMC and SMC and the SLAC experiments in HERMES and COMPASS and JLAB as input information about the quarks. And by constraining the quark helicity distributions, they, then we can leverage the proton-proton data to more tightly constrain the gluon helicity distributions.
0: So let's summarize a bit what we've learned so far and take the example of the EMC experiment. If I would like to study the quark spin contribution to the proton spin, I would measure deep inelastic scattering of spin-polarized muons of spin-polarized protons. In this case, both the muon beam and the proton target would be longitudinally polarized, which means polarized along the beam axis. And here is the trick the interaction between the muon and the quark within the proton is mediated by the exchange of a virtual photon. This virtual photon can only interact with quarks polarized in opposite direction to it. And this is the consequence of helicity conservation in the process of the absorption of a spin one virtual photon by a spin one half quark. So this virtual photon sort of selects only quarks of one polarization. Therefore, by measurements of the dibinelastic inelastic cross sections for parallel and anti-parallel polarizations of muons and protons, uh, we can be sensitive to the densities of quarks polarized along or against the protons polarization. In practicing these measurements, we count the number of scattered leptons, muons in the case of EMC, when the spins of the colliding particles, namely muons from the beam and protons from the target, are aligned or anti-aligned. Dividing the difference of these yields over the sum, we can measure the so-called longitudinal double spin asymmetry. Uh, in case of the Ic we will be using longitudinally polarized electrons and colliding them with longitudinally polarized protons. And in the case of the relativistic heavy ion collider, where we can study, for example, the gluon spin contribution to the proton spin, we are colliding longitudinally polarized proton beams. And here we can study this contribution through the strong interactions of quarks and gluons. In these experiments, we would count, for example, the number of produced jets when the spins of the colliding beams are aligned or anti-aligned. And again, taking the difference of these yields over the sum, we measure the longitudinal double spin asymmetry.
2: That's 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 absolutely correct. That's right. You're going to take a difference over a sum, and that's what we'll call our, our, our double spinning symmetry. That's the classic measurement that has been made at all of these experiments, just with different inputs. So you
1: talk about the various measurements, um, and when we read about results about spin structure, some quantities which we read often are um, delta sigma and delta g. What do they mean, and and how do they connect to the spin structure?
2: Very good. Okay, so so delta sigma is. Simply the sum of the helicity distributions of the quarks inside of the proton. Now, what's a helicity distribution? Let's take the helicity distribution of just up quarks. It's the probability of finding an up quark with its spin aligned with its momentum versus anti aligned with its momentum. And since we're looking at protons that are effectively going the speed of light the quark momentum is aligned with the proton momentum. So this helicity distribution is effectively the probability of finding a quark that spin is aligned with the proton spin versus anti-aligned with the proton spin. Okay. And so if we just sum up all of those dist- distributions from all of the quarks, okay. And we have to do two kinds of sums. We have to sum over the, the different types of quarks up down strange top bottom charm and we have to integrate over a variable called x and this x is the momentum fraction so if the proton has a certain momentum then that momentum must be distributed to all of its components so the up valence quark you're looking at is carrying some momentum fraction, which we call x. But when we're when we're calculating delta sigma, we have to integrate over all of the momentum distributions. So um, so you sum over all the flavors of quarks, and then you integrate over all the momentum distributions. That way you can be sure that you have you know encapsulated or encompassed all of the possible um, Quarks inside of of your proton. So that's delta sigma.
0: And a similar thing we can do also for gluons, right? And and have the gluon contribution. So we have delta sigma and delta G. So, uh, what's the current status of the knowledge (laughs) about delta sigma and delta G? Are there any open questions in the field of the spin
2: of the proton? We sort of started the story, but we really didn't keep going, did we? We started the story, we said that the EMC experiment uh, found that there didn't seem to be a large contribution from the courts. What does EMC stand for? European-U.N. Collaboration. So I think the first measurements were made um, by the EMC collaboration, and then very soon there were also measurements, actually maybe even a before, made by the Stanford Linear Accelerator colli- uh, Collider. Um, and there were two experiments there that had made just a few measurements, but it was really EMC, the EMC collaboration that um, could could really first say something definitive. And the reason goes back to that definition we just talked about of momentum fraction. It was because Slack had made a few measurements, but there were just a few points at, 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 at different places in X. But the EMC collaboration had really kind of gone and made many, many, many measurements in X. And, and so we could start to believe that we understood something about how this distribution looked in X. And remember, that's really important because if we're going to, in Delta Sigma, we have to integrate over X. So so not only can you make the measurement at one X, that doesn't tell you everything you need. You really need to have probe that can go over a wide range of X. So that's why the EMC collaboration uh, result was really important. So people, you know, immediately set out to try to see if they agreed Did they agree with this measurement? Did they see the same thing? And so there were a whole host of experiments that came afterwards. Um, There was the spin-muon collaboration at CERN that was um, also used muons um, and and followed by the COMPASS experiment that's also at CERN and also used muons. But there were a whole bunch of electron scattering experiments too. There there were more experiments at Stanford Linear Accelerator um, in station A. Um, and there were experiments at uh, at Hermes, at Daisy. And all of these experiments uh, use leptons. And the culmination of these experiments is that we we now know that quarks actually do contribute um a significant fraction to the proton uh, spin. And we know that it's about twenty five percent, twenty five to thirty percent of the proton spin comes from the quarks. And the reason that changed is because our measurements got more and more precise. And as they got more and more precise, the air bars went down. And as the air bars go down, um, basically you have less jitter in your measurement and you're able to kind of settle on on a given value. Also, our measurements started to go down to much lower X than the first EMC experiment. And so we started to trust that integral over the momentum fractions we that had thus error in it because we could we could actually integrate to lower x. And so now we know that it's actually not zero. It's actually something like twenty five percent to a to thirty percent, which is still I think smaller than people would have initially thought. It's probably a factor of two less than people would have initially thought. So even if that had been the answer, I think people would have been um, surprised. but there's two areas where we have a lot of uncertainty left. The second area uh, uh, where we have some uncertainty is in the, in the gluon, helicity um, distributions. So all of those experiments that performed all these beautiful measurements, um, were only able to indirectly constrain the gluon, uh, spin distribution. And they did put some constraints, but People realized pretty soon that we either needed to um, go to a different configuration of the experiment, because all these experiments took place in a regime where you have a target that holds your protons and you scatter your electrons and muons off of it, um, which gives you very limited kinematics. Um, so they realized we really need, if we're gonna figure out something about the gluons, we need to do one of two things. We either need to go to a collider where we have an electron and a proton beam, which is part of the reason people are so excited about me IC, because that's really exciting to finally have a polarized electron polarized proton collider, because now we could really open up our kinematics, and that would allow us to really deduce more about the gluon distribution. But that's just coming online in the next decade. So what were we going to do in between? In between, we decided to look at um, the two protons colliding. And so people at the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider studied the collisions of polarized protons and polarized protons. And from that, through a a variety of different measurements that involve looking at inclusive jet asymmetries, the i-jet asymmetries, direct photon asymmetries, all of these different kinds of uh, observables, they were able to make some headway on the question of how much does the gluon contribute to the spin of the proton. In complete analogy to the EMC result, the very first results from Rick gave something that were completely consistent with zero. Again, if you looked at the, the, the extractions, it, the answers were something like the glue ones contribute zero plus or minus a large error bar. It was something very, very small. So people were thought, oh gosh, here we go again. We, we, we were hoping that the glue ones would tell us something about the proton spin, but it looks like they're consistent with zero, but the story, history just repeats itself because as the measurements became more and more precise, as we continue to make um, uh, more and more collisions and collect more and more data, what we found is that the gluon um, contribution to the spin of the proton seems to be about the same as the quark spin, okay? But there's a caveat to that. There's a caveat. And the, the big, big caveat is that it goes back to this, X momentum fraction we were talking about because in electron scattering, they've been able to go down to measure X's from something like almost near 10 to the minus five, at least regularly 10 to the minus four. So 10 to the minus four up to almost to one. Okay. Whereas in proton proton scattering, we've really only been able to barely hit 10 to the minus three. Usually it's 10 to the minus two up to up to basically 0.5, something like that. And so the integral that you're integrating over of of the momentum fraction is much smaller for the gluons. So the uncertainty on that measurement is is much bigger than the uncertainty on our measurement of Delta Sigma. So we know Delta Sigma better than we know Delta G, even though we've made some progress in the last uh, few decades on understanding Delta G, and we can tell in the region that we've measured it, It's about the size of of delta sigma. So, this is one of the exciting things about the electron ion collider is that because it's in a collider configuration, we're going to be able to finally push down to um, much lower x and see what happens to the gluon distribution. Uh, See if some more of the the spin of the proton is at the low x gluons, or if uh, perhaps it, it lies somewhere else. And that's the third. The third big mystery, which is really terra incognita, and that is orbital angular momentum. We know the quarks and gluons must have some orbital angular momentum inside the proton, of course, because they're confined, right? So they're certainly moving around. The question is, is there any net orbital angular momentum? And how does that break down in terms of gluons and quarks? And that's something that is, as far as I know, is completely unconstrained. We know it's there; we see signs of it, but uh but we really haven't been able to extract it. This is sort of the the wild, wild west of uh of spin physics I would say is is trying to quantify and measure our orbital angular momentum contribution. so how would you
0: summarize the role of the e i c in this endeavor of studying the proton spin?
2: I think that it's absolutely essential and in some ways, the ultimate tool. It's the right tool at the right time. We've gotten these glimpses of different parts of the spin of the proton, but with this collider, we really should be able to at least get a complete picture of the, of the gluon contribution. You know, the best part about these new machines uh, is that whenever they come on, you always have these great plans of great things you're going to measure. And you do, you get to measure them. And that's really exciting. But what's even more exciting is the thing that you haven't even thought of yet that you haven't done, but because we have this beautiful machine, you suddenly have this, this tool to explore. And, um, you know, if you talk to people who built Fermilab, they'll say, you know, build the Tevatron. they'll say the same thing that, you know, the Tevatron was built to, to explore Reggie physics and all these different things. Um, and it turned out to to explore all that and much, much more because, you know, once you build it, we will come, right? <laughs> and We will do more things. <laughs> right, exactly. Thank
0: you, René, so much for bringing us for this adventure in discovering the spin structure of the proton.
2: It's been super fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you.